Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. Well, we have reached Joshua 24. And so this is the last chapter of the book of Joshua. And it brings to conclusion our series where we're going through the entire book of Joshua. And throughout this book, what we've seen really are narratives that stress the importance of faith in action. In order for us to build a dynamic faith in God through our lives, we must move with God toward the promises that He has made in the ways that He has commanded us to live. We've seen through the lives of the people of Israel as they have moved into the promises that God has made that God is completely faithful to every single promise that He makes. No promise that God makes ever goes unfulfilled. His plan always comes to pass. His will is always true. God stayed true to every single promise that he made to the people of Israel. But in opposition to that, we saw, we've seen that Israel failed many times. Israel has been unfaithful to God many times throughout these narratives. We've seen that both at the individual level. We've also seen that at the corporate level through the actions of the nation as a whole. And in those times, Israel felt the swift judgment of God. But through repentance, by turning from their sin back to God, they were restored through the amazing grace of God. The God who made the promise to His people is merciful. He is gracious. But when disobedience enters the lives of His people, make no mistake, there are consequences. And those consequences sober us to the reality that God's grace does not mean that He compromises on His vision. Because if you are a recipient of the grace of God, then God is moving you back to His vision. He is moving you back to His design for your life. That this is not about the life that you are envisioning. Rather, this is always about the life that God has a vision for through you. And when I was being trained to start a church before we started this church, I read many books on church planting, attended many conferences on church planting. I talked to many church planters. I was mentored by a few. And so often they would proclaim to me that I had a necessity to form a compelling personal vision that was unique to me, that would be unique to our church, that would inspire people to follow us as a church. But over time, the burden of forming such a unique vision became distasteful to me as I saw so many leaders and so many people move away from God's truth through the forming of those types of visions. Because, friends, the reality is that a personal vision will always lead you down a path of self-aggrandizement. It's always going to form nothing but pride in your life. And I'll tell you, Joshua 24 really presents God's vision for his people. I'm convinced that the only proper vision for life, specifically for the follower of Jesus Christ, is the one that is given by God in the pages of Scripture. Yes, we apply that vision, but the vision still belongs to God. There is no way that I can improve on the vision that God has already given for my life or for yours. God's mission, then, is building a future for His people under the vision of His Lordship. And our responsibility then is to order every single day of our lives around the vision that God has already given. And so I want to start reading in Joshua 24, verse 1. 
The text reads, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. And all the way from there down to verse 13, that theme continues, where Joshua again recounts all that God has done throughout the history up to that point of the nation of Israel. As I talked about last week, he gives reminder after reminder after reminder. That's almost the cycle of the book of Joshua, is that God reminds his people of his faithfulness to them so that they will build their lives on the faithfulness of God rather than seeking it through their own vision for what life is about And really what he's telling them is, number one this morning, God is sovereign and you are responsible. God is sovereign and you are responsible. Note that he goes further back in Joshua 24 than he has previously in the book of Joshua. He doesn't just talk about his faithfulness to bringing them into the promised land. He goes back to Father Abraham. And he says, from Abraham forward, God has been faithful. And I think it's specific, specifically, I don't know what happened there. It's specifically important to note why he mentions Abraham. The text has already told us that they are gathered at Shechem. And that's no accident. God, in Genesis chapter 12, had called Abraham to Shechem. And it was in Shechem that God looked to Abraham and said, I am going to give this very land to your offspring. And so the reason they are consecrating themselves right here and there, it says that they are presenting themselves before the Lord. This is almost, if we were looking at Greek, it would be the idea of ekklesia. It would be the idea of a called out assembly for a specific purpose. And he calls the nation of Israel and he says, not only is he talking to just the leaders, now he is talking, the text says, to all of the people. And they're gathering for a worship service and they're gathering to reconsecrate themselves to the God who's been faithful to bring them to that very moment, to the very place where God had originally made the promise to Abraham many, many centuries before And Joshua looks to the people as if to remind them, has God not been faithful? And note what he says. He says he called Abraham. And then through Abraham came the lineage that we came from. And then through all of the plagues that were given through Moses and Aaron, he's brought you out of Egypt. And then he continues to note up to that day, he says, God has done it over and over and over and over. This hasn't been your victory. This has been God's victory. And God had graciously given it to the nation of Israel's Israel. He recounts for them the work of God because God's will had been accomplished and it always will be accomplished. 
I think it's fascinating that he doesn't look to Israel and say, God is really thankful for you guys. God gave a vision, and because you were talented enough, because you were obedient enough, because you were good enough, you won for God. No, that's not what it says. Sometimes that's how we read it. Sometimes that's how we read our very lives. We may even be tempted to look at our lives and say, man, isn't God lucky? He gets me. No, he looks to the nation of Israel and he says, God's will has been accomplished through the unfailing sovereignty of God over all of life, over all of creation. It is all about him and what he has done. He doesn't congratulate them. He says, worship God. He says, look at everything God has given. He's been so faithful to his promises. And this is not only an Old Testament reality. This is the application of the very gospel of Jesus Christ to our lives. Can you take credit for your own salvation? No, of course not. That is the point of text like Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. The apostle Paul writes of the gospel and he says, Even as God chose us in him before the very foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of what? His will. Again, all of the success belongs to God. All of the victory belongs to God. All of the planning comes from God. All of the sovereignty, the authority, the lordship, it is from the hand of God and the hand of God alone. God chose me before the foundation of the earth. It's really hard for me to take credit for anything that happened before I was even born. Not even before I was born, before Adam and Eve were created. Not even before Adam and Eve were created, before the earth's foundations were even made in eternity past. God chose us in Christ. Friends, you did not save yourself if you are saved. God did it. God gets the glory. God gets the credit. God deserves the worship. If you trust in Jesus, then the guarantee of your faith is him. And that is great news. Because if you saved yourself, then the guarantee of your salvation, you know whose hands that would be in? That would be in your hands. I don't even trust my hands from the refrigerator to the counter sometimes. Because I'll drop what's in it. I don't have a 100% success rate to making it to the counter. Maybe you do, but I have failed before. Therefore, how could I trust myself with even a moment of my salvation? It is God and God alone that is trustworthy. You don't guarantee it through your hand. It is his work. Therefore, he is the guarantee. The actual plan and work of the gospel is the plan and work of God. I love the way Luke writes of the sermon of Peter in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. He writes that, yes, the wicked men of Israel killed Jesus, but it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that brought it about. In verse 23, it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, yes, they did it, but it was God's plan. It was God's work. It was God's foreknowledge that brought all of this to be. And here's what we need to understand about Scripture. This is the same message of Joshua 24. 
Our faithfulness to God must be grounded in the fact that He is the sovereign Lord of all. And while He is that sovereign Lord, the Scripture is equally as clear about your responsibility to His Lordship. You are responsible to submit to Him. There's no contradiction there. They're both equally true. God is sovereign and I am responsible for my life. After recounting the work of God from verses 1 through verse 13, note what he says in verse 13. This is just a great summary of the grace of God for Israel. It says, God, I gave you the land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant looks to Israel and he says, man, even your next meal isn't coming from your hand. So I gave it to you. But then verse 14 is fascinating. All of that is true. He is so sovereign. And in light of that, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers, excuse me, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, what a fascinating phrase. All that he said about God, and he still assumes there's at least someone in the crowd that's going to object. Sounds like you guys. He says in verse 15, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the, gods of your, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are sometimes tempted to believe, well, it doesn't matter what I do. God is sovereign. His plan is going to come about. Doesn't matter whether or not I serve him. Doesn't matter whether or not I tell someone about Jesus. Doesn't matter whether or not I'm obedient or I'm disobedient. I mean, if God is sovereign, then I am out of the equation. It doesn't matter what I do. Yet scripture right here says the Lord is sovereign. His will is firm. He delivers on his promises. It doesn't depend on you. But... In light of that, fear him. In light of that, serve him. In light of that, repent of your idolatry. And in light of that, choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua sees no contradiction. Joshua is not looking for a way out. Joshua is looking to the people and he is saying, if this God is sovereign and if this God is all powerful, you must submit to him. Why? Because he said so. Because he has all authority. Because nothing that he does fails and I love the fact that he looks to the nation and he assumes that even after all that they had seen the hand of God do, that there were still people in the nation of Israel that had this temptation to serve the false gods that had been around since before Abraham. 
to serve the false gods that were there on the other side of the river. And he looks to them, and it's almost as if to say, how foolish can you be? You've seen the hand of the one true God. Have you ever seen the hand of the false god? You've experienced the great success of the one true God, yet you still dabble in idolatry. And this is no different from our day. All that God has done through Jesus Christ, the reality even of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that God became a human being, died on the cross and rose from the dead. I've done a lot of funerals, never seen that one. If I did, I would leave. That's weird. I mean, God has done everything that could ever be done to leave us inexcusable from denying him. Failure after failure, sin after sin in my life, God is still faithful. And yet he looks to the nation that has seen what last week when Joshua recounted it, he said, one of you stands before a thousand Canaanites and the Canaanites fall. Do you think you're the reason that that happened? And yet he still looks to them and he says, get rid of those false gods. Choose this day whom you will serve. God is in absolute control of all. Therefore, in his authority, he demands you submit to him and him alone. In his sovereignty, he has orchestrated everything to give us the responsibility to still choose him. This is the same demand that Jesus makes in John 12, 48. Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Where does Jesus lay the responsibility? He lays it on our shoulders. He says, if you reject me, you're making a terrible error because you will be held accountable because you are responsible The scripture, again, knows of no contradiction here between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The scripture plainly states that I must choose to submit because of the sovereign power of God. And if I refuse, Jesus is clear, it is to my own condemnation. And so the question must be posed to Israel in this moment, why would you choose to chase after lesser gods when the only true God is ruling and reigning over all the universe. And yet, when I think about the nation of Israel, I think about us. And I think about the fact that we yet still chase after lesser gods. Gods of fame, the gods of status, the gods of money, the gods of lust. Seeking the fulfillment that God and God alone can give us in gods that fail over and over. Why? Because we believe somewhere the God who is there, the God who made all, the God who is sovereign over absolutely everything. We think in our sin that somehow he has fallen short and we deserve a greater satisfaction than he has to offer us. And so we chase it in lesser 
gods. We will never find it in those lesser gods. And so Joshua stands under the authority of the Holy Spirit and he says, choose this day. Will you chase the less or will you give your life to the sovereign rule of God? And the truth of that is revealed in the very life that you live, what you have chosen, where your affections send you, what you are chasing after, what you believe would give you ultimate satisfaction. That is what you are choosing. And to that, Joshua 24 says, put away the former gods. I mean, I love the fact that Joshua gives us in one paragraph what we believe takes years of therapy to accomplish. What we believe we must work through. What we believe we must deal with for an extended period of time. Joshua says, put them away, choose God. That's the answer. He simplifies what we complicate. And the fact is that he does that because number two, the future belongs to those who fear God and it doesn't belong to anyone else. The future belongs to those who fear God. But Joshua is clear. You have to choose not just mentally. You must also choose physically to order your life towards him. Joshua is a great demotivational speaker. And here's what I mean by that. Look again in verse 15. He says, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among whom all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And that's where we just are like, oh my goodness, Joshua's going to give them a gold star. Joshua's going to be like, you passed. You get a 100. Good job, everyone. That's not what he says. Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. Oh. But what was all that other stuff? You told me to choose and now you're telling me I failed already. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. That is a fascinating turn of events in that section. It's really not what we want. So many of us, when we hear a sermon, we just want chicken soup for the soul. Just give me some inspiration. Going to have a tough week. All right. And here's Joshua saying, you are going to fail. 
It's like, well, that's not what I signed up for, Joshua. I wanted a, a pep talk. <laughs> Thought that's what we were headed towards. Talk is cheap. The validity of your commitment will be defined by your life moving forward, the way that you order your life. And what Joshua does here is he shows the juxtaposition between the faithfulness of God and the fleeting commitment of human faithlessness. Israel denies that they will forsake God. And what Joshua really is pointing back to is what he talked about in Joshua 23. He told the leaders, he said, you must cling to God. Notice that for the nation, that it's really just a denial of negative intentions rather than a proclamation of positive affirmation toward God. And Joshua refutes their claim starting there in verse 19. It's an interesting statement because Joshua says you are unable to live up to the very commitment to faithfulness you're making right here. One of the biggest mistakes that I see people make in commitment is that you underestimate your sin. Notice who the strength was going to come from in their commitment. I can do it. I will be faithful. I will not forsake the Lord. And I love the way Joshua points to attributes of God in his refutation of their commitment. He points to the holiness of God as if to say, do you think that you can be as faithful as God? He says, our God is a holy God. Sin is not even in his presence. Sin is not even in his potential. He is completely set apart for his own purposes, apart from even the possibility of sin. And he says, not only is he holy, but in his holiness, he looks at you with great jealousy. And before you begin to say, as though you will never forsake him, consider your sinfulness in light of his holiness and then tell me where you measure up. Then tell me of this great faithfulness that will exude from your life. There is a real struggle that is obvious in every single one of our lives, and that struggle is sin. Israel couldn't even make it out of Egypt to the promised land without breaking their covenant to God. Spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. Even going into the promised land, they had struggled with faithfulness to God and they had been faithless so many times. And it is as if Joshua is looking at them and saying, while I'm reminding you of the great faithfulness of God, do I need to remind you of the great faithlessness of you? When you proclaim this great commitment to obeying the standards of God, have you remembered your sin? I mean, this is a bold statement, and Joshua is saying, if you believe you are capable of the same faithfulness that God is capable of toward you, do you realize that if you break your side of this covenant? Because that's what they're saying. We can live up to our covenant Joshua is saying, once you break that covenant, it's over. 
There's no forgiveness. You won't be redeemed out of that treachery. If it's on you, then it's on you. And it will always be on you. What will your commitment mean at that point? The tricky thing about following Jesus is that it demands that you understand how much of a failure you are in light of how much a success God is. How unfaithful you are in comparison to how faithful God is. It is only at that point when you realize that that you can begin to build a life of faithfulness because my failure before a perfectly faithful God will always be dependent on Him being gracious to great degrees to me. Friend, I will never be able to save myself. And that is the point where our responsibility kicks in, where we have to realize the implications of the amazing sovereignty of God will only ever reveal how much better he is than me. And so for me to make a covenant with God will never suffice because I can't live up to it. So I need God to make the promise and I will always be the one who receives his grace. Galatians chapter 6 puts it this way in light of the gospel of Jesus. The apostle Paul writes and he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that's what you're going to reap. For the one who sows in his flesh or to his flesh will from the flesh reap what? Corruption. That is your capability apart from the grace of God. And we often don't read that text that way. Israel is promising we will reap to the flesh and we will be enough. And Joshua says, well, good luck with that. <laughs> it's not going to work out the way that you want it to. So you're going to fail. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Do you know where sowing to the spirit begins? Sowing to the spirit begins at the moment of failure. Sowing to the Spirit begins at the moment where you look to God and say, I can't. Only you can. God, I can't save myself. I can't redeem myself. I can't fix myself. God, only you can fix the mess I am making with my life. I need the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is the moment where you can begin then to reap in the Spirit and you will sow from the Spirit the potential from the power of the Spirit to rebuild what sin has broken. What Israel needed was a real confrontation with the grace of God. And Joshua is giving it to them. So many of you don't realize that grace will bring harsh words into your life. Salvation is not about a simple mental agreement that God is sovereign and you are responsible to him. It is a day in and day out reality of mentally and then physically building a life around both saying that Jesus is Lord and submitting yourself to your need of his lordship over every area of your life. 
Do not build a life in which you will end up being a witness against yourself. That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. But that's what Joshua says is going to happen. He says, you're making this great commitment right here. But do you realize that when you fail at the commitment, you are going to witness against yourself? In other words, God just has to point out, you said you would and you didn't. And you're guilty. And every single one of us, that is the truth of our lives. I don't need a jury of my peers to convict me. I convict myself. I don't need witnesses against me. The scripture says, I witness against myself. God's just going to show me my words. I say, how did that work out for you? That's judgment. That's reality. There is no harsher judge in your life than your own words. Because they testify to the folly of your life. There will come a day when you will reap what you have sown. And on that day, what will be the truth of your life? Will you point to a life of absolute dependency upon the sovereign God? Or will you just talk the talk and end up reaping sin upon sin upon sin? Because God is exclusive in judgment and he only blesses the right choice. Joshua is clear. Choose. You have to make the choice and God will only bless one. He will only ever bless the right choice. By all means, though, friends, don't lie. Be honest. Tell the truth. Is God enough? Because for so many, he isn't. And yet you would say he is. But what are you chasing? What commands your affection? What gods have you yet to put away? Jesus makes a similar statement to Joshua in Matthew 6, 24. He puts it bluntly. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The original word there is mammon. It just means material gain. And we measure that by money. The old gods are not put behind us, are they? Because Jesus states that the issue is still the same. We attempt to serve two masters. And so many of us think we're so good at it. Do you know the danger in that? You're like, okay, my spiritual life, God has it. I want forgiveness. I want heaven. But this physical world, oh man, there's some good stuff. And with my life, I'm going to pursue everything that this world has to offer because it makes me feel so good. I mean, Jesus couldn't have been clearer. He says, you cannot do that. You will fail. But here's the great tragedy of that failure, and it's from Joshua 24. You will witness against yourself in the end with your failure. And you don't think you will. But it's the same for all of us. Who will you serve? What's interesting is that in every one of these texts, the choice is never stated. 
as though the false gods will deliver anything good into our lives. Joshua doesn't act like it's a competition, and neither does Jesus. It's always spoken of as though the false gods have already failed you, and they have. You just believe lies. He always speaks in Scripture as though the only real true God, the only sovereign, is the God who has created everything, the God who called Israel, the God who sent Jesus, the God who went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, to take the judgment that you deserve for your idolatry onto Himself and pay the price that you owe, and then the God that rose from the dead proclaiming His deity and then saying a new life can be yours if you will just put away the former gods and you will follow him. It's the same story as it always has been and the reason that so many build their lives around things like materialism and the abundance of possessions is that you think you are going to need them in the future. And yet... Joshua warns them, if you choose poorly... Those things won't save you in the future. If you choose poorly, you reap judgment. And the things that you thought were going to build the future that you were looking for and that you always wanted will only serve to deliver the hell of separation from God for eternity. And I say that the future belongs to those who submit to God. The future belongs to those who receive His grace. The future belongs to those who build a life on the Word of God because God says the future belongs to the only sovereign Lord. And so if I want it, i got to find it in Him because I can't find it anywhere else because, number three, your life will be defined by your choices. I know you want it to be more complicated than that. Because you're looking for an excuse. You're looking for a reason. You're looking for a way out. But friends, everything boils down to choices. It's one of the things George Jones got right. It's all about choices. God is going to judge you based on His vision, not yours. I love the way Joshua states it in verse 23. He he says, Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Verse 23, he said, then put away the former gods. Stop talking. (laughs) He says, do it. He says, if you're going to be faithful, repent. Put away those former gods from among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And I love the way Joshua does this in verse 27. Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. 
For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his own inheritance. Scripture tells us so many times, count the cost. And yet so often we just say, I will follow without considering what it's going to cost us because we don't want it to cost us anything. And God is clear in his word. It's always going to cost you everything. If you want Jesus Christ, if you want to come to him, you will find the most gracious savior than you could ever imagine in all of the universe. He is absolutely forgiving. He is absolutely redeeming. He is absolutely loving. And at the moment that you come to him and the moment that he saves your life and the moment that he redeems you, he then looks you square in the eyes and says, take up your cross and follow. Follow me. Consider the cost. Are you ready to put the old man to death and receive the new life that is available in Jesus Christ? Because it involves denial of sin, denial of everything that God hates. And Joshua says, you have not considered the cross. Therefore, I'm going to set up a monument. And that monument has heard the words from God to you. But also that monument has heard the words of you to God. And it will one day stand as a witness against you. Have you counted the cost? God's faithfulness never changes. God's faithfulness never fails. Yet we try to negotiate with him. You obey God because you want God to bless you. And that's a good thing. Yes, all the blessings come from God. And we obey him because we want his promises in our lives. But this is the problem with having some sort of personal vision with your life. You want the forgiveness of God where you fall short. But you think that through some sort of negotiated agreement with God, that he will be a part of your spiritual life, requiring him then to bless a vision for your life that you formed without him. You don't take up your cross and follow him. You look to God and say, God, now you take up your cross and you bless me. Bless everything that I want, everything that I say. The standard of judgment for your life when it comes, and it is. It's not going to be based on whether or not you succeeded at your personal vision. God will always judge based on his vision for your life. And that is what makes him the Lord. And so, simply put, make the right choice. Verse 31 is this amazing concluding statement, I think, to the book of Joshua. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. I love that. Joshua 23, the vision for leadership. They did it. They were faithful leaders and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. But then comes the book of Judges. <laughs> the next generation didn't do so hot. You know you failed if the entire book of the Bible's theme is every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Their words did end up being witnesses against them. And they did not live up to their side of the covenant. That is the tragedy of Israel. Yet, as I said at the beginning, God is completely faithful. God is completely sovereign. 
And through generation after generation of unfaithfulness, God brings judgment into their lives. He even sends other wicked nations in as a judgment against Israel. They're taken into captivity. They repent and they come out of captivity and God continues to endure them generation after generation after generation. Why? Because God said, one day I'm going to send someone who will not fail. And through the nation of Israel comes God, the son, Jesus Christ. And he lived the perfect life that I am completely unable to live so that he would not have sin of his own to die for. And he died for my sin. And if you will give your life to him, then he died for your sin, too. Fascinating in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man that the scripture says ever lived was King Solomon. And he recounts throughout that book everywhere that he pursued a personal vision for life. And he keeps saying over and over, everything is vanity. Everything is a chasing after the wind. You know what that means? What, what Solomon says over and over again is that a personal vision is nothing more than self-worship and a waste of time. That's his point. And then he concludes the book in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, with really what Joshua 24 is saying. Fear God and keep his commandments. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. That's how I like to end arguments. The end of the matter, all has been heard. He said, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now keep in mind, Solomon writes this book to his young son. He looks to his son, he says, if you make the right choice young, you will live the only type of life that is actually worth living. Because God is going to bring judgment of every deed. There are no secrets with him. You are not fooling him. Your life will be defined by your choices. And because we are on this side of the cross, by his grace, we can choose Jesus Christ. And we must. And if you make the right choice now, you will have the only life worth living. So choose him. A few application points. Define life according to God's faithfulness. Do not be so foolish as to set yourself up as your own personal Messiah because you will fail. Secondly, accept responsibility to submit to God's vision. It's not about you. It's about him. Accept the responsibility for your sin. Accept the responsibility for your failure. Accept the responsibility for your idolatry. Accept responsibility. And then thirdly, consider the cost of following Jesus before you commit. Forgiveness, it's a wonderful thing. I have been completely reconciled to God, and it's 100% been based on the work of Jesus, 0% based on the work of me, but it did cost me something. And it will cost you something. Jesus said, give me your life. And he took it. And I'm his. And I have to take up my cross. And I follow him. Because I belong to him. Count the cost. And then finally, choose wisely. <laughs> but choose based on God's judgment, 
Don't trust yourself too much. Trust his word because he is Lord.